You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that doesn't recommend that you try and get struck by lightning in order to get superpowers. Welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 till cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my favorite Green Lanterns and, well, Green Lanterns that are showing up in these books. Obviously, because I'm covering them, and that's my mission statement. Uh, it's been a long time again since I've been doing a solo show, and I apologize for that. I had a lot of people come in and guest spot, and I hope you enjoyed those shows. I really had fun talking with Tom Panarese, uh, even though we really didn't talk all that much about Robin, but that was fun to do. I had a great time recording with him. I also had a great time recording with Michael Bradley doing the Green Lantern Silver Surfer thing, and despite the audio problems, which I don't know whether they were due to me just not paying attention or audacity or whatever, we got fixed, and hopefully that turned out pretty well as well. But this time out, I'm on my own. Check it out, Green Lantern number 72, where, obviously, Green Lantern meets up with Captain Marvel. Yes, some of you currently may know him as Shazam, but he's actually Captain Marvel. And then over in Guy Gardner, here's something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Guy Gardner Warrior gets his own cartoon show, and you get to witness it in the comic. And as a bonus, it's drawn by the ever-popular Mike Parabek, who basically brought us the Batman animated adventures. So the artwork's awesome, the story is fun, and it's going to be a great time. But before I get to that, I've got a ton of email that I need to read from you guys, and also I've got some promos to play, which is common because it's part of my Demonsacore contract to make sure that I promote podcasts of the Demonsacore type, if that means anything. But after this break and after these promos, we'll come back with our coverage of Green Lantern number 72. Get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. This looks like a job for Superman. Thank you. 
Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limson.com And we're back. And as it's been a while since I've done any email at all, I'm raring to get to it. So let's go ahead and open up the email bag and see what kind of letters we have from you. Wonderful, wonderful listeners. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and we start out this time with a couple of letters from Scott Davis, our listener to the Great White North. Scott starts out writing in, Hi, Sean. How are things going? Things are great up here in the true north, strong and free. God bless that. By the way, I thought this might be a good time to officially apologize on behalf of Canada for Celine Dion. Sorry about that. We don't mind. Uh, she's in Vegas. She's isolated right now, so we don't have to deal with her. And I appreciate your apology. Uh, Scott continues said, I was able to read Green Lanterns 46 and 47 and Guy Gardner 15 through 17, including Justice League America 83. Uh, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Here are some notes. Green Lantern 46 through 47. 46, this tie-in to the reign of Superman was a fun issue, but honestly I had no idea what was going on. It does make me want to read more of the reign of the Superman issues, though. The art by M.D. Bright was astounding, especially on the double splash pages on 2 and 3 and 6 and 7. Thanks for having Michael Bradley on the show, because he provided great insight. It was interesting that you guys mentioned the Green Arrow as stereotyped as a liberal. I haven't read any Green Arrow yet, but I might just go back and read some of the old Green Lantern Green Arrow issues one day. Yeah, Ollie was pretty much written as a very horrible liberal stereotype. In fact, it was so ham-fisted at times it kind of took me out of the book. Uh, it was really played up quite a bit in the uh, Dark Knight, uh, what the Dark Knight Returns story by Frank Miller, where it was essentially Green Arrow versus the Question, and they're sort of a crossfire type thing, if I remember. Eh, really wasn't all that good. Going back to the letter, he says, Green Lantern number 47. Speaking of Green Arrow, when I saw him on the cover, I was really excited to read the issue. Too bad the issue is absolutely terrible. My thoughts as well. 
And to top it off, it's Gerard Jones' last issue of his Green Green Lantern. Jones is really going out with a whimper on this one by trying to wrap up all of the loose ends, and it fails miserably. I had to stare at page 6 for about 10 minutes to try and figure out how Hal got Carol released from those yellow missiles. I still can't figure it out. Same here, it was a wacky sort of misdirection. I don't get it. The catfight between Carol and Olivia on page 13 was great, though, as all catfights are. Once again, Flicker fails to get revenge on Green Lantern. I really don't understand what the whole point of Carol's mother doing this whole charade. What was the whole point of this? And as far as how it goes in the issue, he really doesn't portray much of a sense of guilt over the destruction of Coast City. On page 15, he's joking around with Green Arrow about how they both knew each other and how... And... Sorry, about how much they knew each other and were with the wrong ladies. Also, Hal's hitting on Olivia Reynolds at the end of the issue by staring at her ass as she leaves the room saying, Oh yes, Olivia, I'll see you soon. Again, Hal Jordan, horniest man on the planet. Your whole city was just destroyed in the previous issue, Hal. Where is the remorse? It was nice that you were playing my Canadian homeboy Brian Adams in this podcast. I've never been a huge fan, but he's one of those artists that at least has one song you can love. By the way, I don't want to end this issue on a down note, so overall I really do appreciate Gerard Jones' work on Green Lantern series during his run in the early 90s. I don't hear his name brought up very often, but I'll definitely be cracking open a Canadian beer tonight to super. Great job, Gerard. Uh, I agree with you fully. Uh, Gerard Jones is really underlooked, and his run on Green Lantern in the 90s, in my opinion, rivals the run that Jeff Johns had. It was some really good stuff, some really interesting stuff. Yeah, we had the sort of clunkers in these last few issues, and especially issue 37, but overall, it was a really interesting story, and it brought Green Lantern back into the forefront of the DCU at the time. So, unfortunately, it got kind of tied up with the whole Emerald Twilight thing, So, but yeah, that is what it is. Continuing on, he goes, Guy Gardner 15 through 17, including Justice America, Just League America and number 83. Just League America 83. It was tough to get in this issue, because I'm not familiar with anything that's going on with the Ancient Ones and why Booster and Beetle are arguing with each other so much. Booster and Beetle always argue with each other. That's just pretty much it. It was an okay issue, but I'm not very interested to pick up any other issues in the JLA around this time. Guy's drawn weird, especially with the splash page at the end where he's holding a bazooka. Guy Gardner 15, this wrap-up of the troubles with the trouble with the guys is a bit weak. I was hoping that would kill off Guy's clone, because now they just leave it open for a future storyline where the clone comes back to get revenge, and we really don't need that. Oh, you don't know the half of it. Blue Beetle's a jerk to Guy on page 5, but Wonder Woman knows that Guy is the real deal. When falling, when ending, when the ending falls flat where Guy spreads four panels explaining what happened and how his friends are in space and while waiting to transport the Guy clone. I think that Dixon was trying to be funny, but it didn't work at all. Guy Gardner 16, Militia is back here to kick some ass and take names later. His outfit is obviously terribly great. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no. His outfit is absolutely terrible, though. And if you don't remember, it's the very yellow and blue and uh, it's the 90s, Jake. It's the 90s. Great line on page 6. All he wants to do is make the world a better place, even though... Even if he's got to be the last one left to enjoy it. Guy hitting on Wonder Woman on page 17 is great when she has the lasso of truth wrapped around him and says, you can let me go, Double W, unless you want to continue this at my place. She's definitely into it, the way she looks at him, and she leaves. Yeah, 
I think we kind of got the idea that Wonder Woman and Guy might have had a bit of a liking for each other. I really like this issue, and it makes me want to read the next one. The Lobocop advertisement on page 20 is bizarre. Have you read this? Nope. Probably won't. Guy Gardner Warrior number 17. My first impression of the new artist Mitch Bird are mixed. I'm going to have to get used to his style. His Guy Gardner on panel 1 of page 15 is strange, and I'm not really a fan of how he draws his women, especially Ice, Fire, and Wonder Woman on page 16. I'm sure I'll get used to it, though. I was surprised that Guy hadn't heard that his dad had died. I thought the news would have trickled down to him sometime over the years. I really like the emotional visit with his mother and how he says he honestly didn't know he was going to come back to her to visit him again. This was a good issue, and I'm enjoying his battle with Militia. Ugh, the last play, splash page of Guy in his new warrior outfit is hilarious. Whose brilliant idea was to fit him with assless chaps? Editorial, I'm going to assume. I guess we finally get the cowboy boots, though he's still not going to draw too much unwarranted attention if he ever, ever has to visit a bar like the White Swallow in San Francisco. And I don't want to know what kind of bar that is. Thanks, Sean Scott. Awesome, Scott. I'm glad you enjoyed these issues. In fact, we've got another email here from Scott entitled Emerald Twilight and Emerald Fallout. He goes, Hi, Sean. Your episodes covering Emerald Twilight were great. I was able to catch up on Greenlander 48 through 50 and Emerald Fallout, Guy Gardner Warrior 18 through 21. Here are some notes. Emerald Twilight, Greenlander 48 through 50. I've been looking forward to reading these issues for a long time and they don't disappoint at all. These issues were awesome. You are correct there, sir. Ron Mars comes in and completely turns the Green Lantern series on his head. It was a risky move, and he pulled it off. He does a great job showing Hal turned crazy, especially on page 13 of part 1, where Hal wants to play God and recreate Co City. It's funny, on the last page, we get our first look at Kyle, and he is looking like he's having a picnic in the whole of Co City at the beach. Uh, I don't think it was meant to be that way. I think he was further away from that, but yeah, the, our first introduction to Kyle really isn't all that epic, I guess. But, you know, it is what it is. But I know he's not really there, so they could have put a better background to make it look like he wasn't being so insensitive. <laughs> that would be kind of amusing, though, if Kyle were just, you know, hanging out in the uh, hole of Coast City, you know, lying back trying to get a moon tan, I guess. I don't know. It's weird. The art by Willingham, Haynes, and Banks in each of the three issues was all excellent. In part two, it looks like they'll all need to read the Green Lantern quarterlies to find out who some of these characters are. Ron Mars cements Hal's craziness by cutting off Boudicca's hand in page 15. Yeah, that was pretty brutal. And it's on now. There's no turning back. The famous cover with Hal holding all the Green Lantern rings is great. And the Sinestro reveal at the end of Green Lantern, uh, at the end with a Green Lantern ring is great too. In part three, the fight with Sinestro is excellent. You guys nailed it. Snapping the neck of Sinestro is a much more personal than blowing him away with a power ring. And wow... Hal absolutely fries Kilowog, Kilowog to the ground. I actually had a sinking feeling in my stomach when I saw that death. Brutal stuff. The art on page 26 with Banks' signature, again, totally takes me out of the story. Yeah, we talked about that. The, it was a great splash page and great reveal of Hal Jordan as Parallax, completely ruined by a giant signature down at the bottom of the page. It screams of arrogance. Probably so. I understand that Banks is trying to get credit for his art when kids rip that page out and put it on the wall. Why would you rip a page out? Don't rip pages out of your comics. But I have a feeling that most kids didn't do that. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. One surprise for me was I thought that was I always thought that Kyle was picked for a specific reason. But Gantt that says, 
you'll have to do. So this means that Kyle is just some random Nine Inch Nails fan who had to take a leak in the alley of the Heretic Club. That's pretty much it. Which is an interesting idea because it kind of means that anyone could have been Green Lantern, which allows him to grow into the character of the hero. So it works in some ways, and in some ways it aggravates people. Overall, it was nice to finally read the historic Emerald Twilight, and I really enjoyed it. I look forward to reading Kyle's adventures of the next ten years. Emerald Fallout. Unfortunately, the same can't be said for this series. Oh, that's disappointing. Did Chuck Dixon burn himself out on the fantastic Yesterday's Stin storyline? Because the reveal of Militia being Guy's older brother Mace in issue 19 was absolutely awful. Eh, I wasn't fond of it, but I guess it works in the whole of it, so... It's, it's, it's turned around a bit. I really cannot believe he did this. What a terrible, terrible thing to do. Now the story is, Mace faked his death and for some reason wants to kill his younger brother Guy. When I first read this issue, I literally wanted to rip it up. Again, don't rip up your comics. But for some specific notes. Guy Gardner Warrior 18. General Glory barbecues in his full outfit. Yes, he does. All superheroes do. Uh, You ought to go to the uh, Justice League barbecues. You know, Aquaman's there in his outfit. Firestorm essentially is able to uh, essentially be the grill. So that's kind of cool. Funny stuff, he says. Sorry, got distracted by Firestorm. That would be kind of amusing if Firestorm was basically a giant barbecue. Oh, uh, back to the letter. In this issue, I felt the identity of Militia was starting to drag out, but now I kind of wish that they kept it a secret. I don't think this was the end when Bivix... I don't think this was the end of Bivix when he was plummeting to his death earth until I listened to your podcast. That would be a sad way to go out. I hope that's not the end of him, but I really like the artwork better in this issue than Bird's first issue, but his choice of the new warrior outfit is pretty brutal. The CD players on the shoulders are absolutely hilarious, though. Well, you got to have your kicking tunes when you're walking around in the most ridiculously over-the-top 90s armor out there. Oh, wait, I forgot about Booster Gold's armor. Booster Gold. Guy Gardner, Warrior number 17, going back to the letter. I think I've said all I want to say for this issue. The reveal of Mace was stupid, so now that Guy has his power ring back, can he please get rid of this ridiculous outfit? No, no he can't. He's going to use it in the next issue. It's sad. But these two issues are labeled as Emerald Fallout Parts 1 and 2, and if they really have nothing to do with that, what was happening to the Green Lantern series? It was probably labeled this for promotional reasons. Guy Carter War 20, being the beginning of Bo Smith's run on Warriors, starts out with a bang because it includes a great splash page of Aresia's new outfit on page 11. Oh, Scott, please don't tell me you like that outfit. I had to do a double take when I turned the page and saw her standing there in that ridiculous 90s outfit. Oh, good. You guys had me laughing when you were talking about it on the podcast. The high heels were hilarious, and it turned out to be her downfall on page 18 when she fell down and couldn't get herself off the ground. Seeing Kilowog's skull was pretty tough to take, and the splash page of Guy Holton's skull was a pretty emotional moment. Overall, I enjoyed this issue, but I'm still on the fence with Bird's art. Hal looked kind of weird on the last page when he was bursting from the ground. Yeah, it takes a while to get used to uh, Mitch Bird's art, but hopefully uh, uh, you'll come along to it. Guy Gardner Warrior number 21, this was an interesting issue with each page being a splash page. The issue really shows how powerful Hal is because he just destroys everyone in his path, including Guy. 
I guess this is round three between the two of them, and Hal takes the lead two to one. You're right, the panel of Guy losing his eye was pretty gross, but I enjoyed this issue. By the way, Michael Bradley, or not Michael Bradley, Michael Bailey and Thomas DJ did a great job with your discussions, and they were excellent. I'm not familiar with this heat group you guys were talking about, but I did, did a quick search on the web and it sounded pretty intense. But I'm a Kyle fan, so I'm actually pretty happy about the way it turned out over the years. But it sounded like some fans were not. Thanks a bunch, Scott. Thank you, Scott, for writing in. I appreciate you writing in. Uh, We've got a few more emails from Scott, but I've also got a few emails from some other listeners, so I'm going to go ahead and get to those right now. Our next email comes from Stephen J. Rogers. He writes in about Ollie's demise, and he says, Checking a few sites, and he says he was checking a few sites, and Ollie dies in Green Arrow 101, which came out in October of 1995. Covers leading up to it seem to have both Connor and Ollie on it, so I guess Ollie was on the run or whatever was going on in his title. And this kind of uh, lets us know what the heck was going on with Ollie at the time, because I think Luke Giaconetti and I were kind of confused that Ollie had uh, essentially Connor's costume on in uh, issues 63 and 64 of Green Lantern, where Kyle was fighting Parallax again. So uh, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, we were just kind of wondering what the heck was going on with Ollie there. And in fact, dovetailing into that, we have a letter from Mr. Hugo Rivera. I think he's the first time writing in, so thanks for writing in, Hugo. I appreciate you doing that. He actually says, uh, his, he actually titles his letter, uh, Green Lantern 63 and 64, and he says, Hello, Sean. My name's Hugo, and I love your show. Well, thank you, Hugo. Anyone who actually listened to my show is always an awesome person in my book. Uh, he continues, I'm also a big fan of Kyle. Another plus for you, Hugo. Uh, that's awesome. Oliver changed his costume after issue zero. Okay, makes sense, the whole zero-hour thing. And and issue 91 of Green Arrow after going back to the monastery from hard-traveling heroes. There he also met Connor, which ended up following him. Both of them wore the same uniform until Ollie died in issue 100 of Green Arrow. Okay, that makes sense. Connor went, uh, I'm sorry, Connor kept wearing the uniform in order to honor his dad. Hope this clears up why he's wearing what we consider to be the Connor Hawk Green Arrow uniform. Keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Hugo. I appreciate you writing in. I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, uh, that pretty much clears up everything for the whole idea that we didn't know what the heck was going on with uh, Green Arrow. So I guess in the books he was on the run and he met up with Connor at the monastery and they both were wearing the same uniform. So it makes sense. So problem solved. Thanks for letting us know about that, Hugo. That is completely and totally awesome. Our next email comes from uh, Mr. Robert Ward. Hey, another new emailer. Thanks for writing in, Robert. I appreciate it. Uh, He didn't have any subject to it, but he talks about uh, a Hawkman film. And his email says a Hawkman film is always possible. I mean, they did make one. Sure, it was the triple X variety, but that counts, right? And yes, uh, sadly, I did see that... uh, Triple X, well, I didn't see that Triple X Hawkman film, but I saw the uh, promos for it, and surprisingly, the uh, Hawkman and Shiera in it looked pretty good. I mean, they looked on model, and they kind of followed the idea of them being reincarnated people, and the Gentleman Ghost was in there, and as Luke Giaconetti said, everyone loves the gen- Gentleman Ghost, and aside from it being a uh, adult film, it uh, looked pretty good. It Except for the flying sequences. Those look hideous, but yeah. Porno film. Neat. 
And moving from that, as we're getting up to about the 30-minute point in the show, and I want to try and get as much email in as I possibly can, we've got one from a special man. A man whose amazing ability to air guitar rivals anything else in the world. And a man who probably is responsible for the breakup of Dave Mustaine from Metallica. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Mr. Luke Giaconetti who wrote in. And the title of his email is, Thank God That Giaconetti Guy Isn't On This One. Wow, self-deprecation. Okay. Luke writes in saying, Sean, ah, a much better guest host this time out. Oh, Luke, no, you are awesome, and I really appreciate you coming on for those three episodes of Just One of the Guys where we covered the Way of the Warriors storyline. That was a heck of a lot of fun. Obviously, he's talking about uh, Dave Walker coming on and the uh, Flash crossover, the Faster Friends storyline. Luke continues, It's always good to have Dave on because it means we get the awesome Flash Gordon music from the Flash Legacies promo. Yeah, I remember when I first heard that, I thought it was going to be a Flash Gordon podcast, and I would have listened to that as much as I listened to Flash Legacies. So, eh, it was a misdirect, but I'm enjoying the Flash Legacies show. Continuing on, uh, Luke says, you guys mentioned Jonathan Brandis. I never watched Sequest, but what I always remember from him him from is the movie Sidekicks, obviously, with Chuck Norris and Joe Piscopo. Norris plays himself. Unfortunately, Piscopo does not. How could Piscopo not play himself? Isn't that what he does in all his movies? Never, never mind. It's like a karate version of Viva Knievel. Wow. Do you remember that one? Yes. Yes, I do. Evil Knievel in the 70s. How can you not remember that one? Would Evil Knievel be a more appropriate discussion for a US-1 episode, perhaps? Hmm. If only someone was doing a US-1 podcast. Luke continues, In Green Lantern, you guys talked about the movie marquee, which was glimpsed. Evil Dead came out in 1981, so a double feature of Bloodsucking Freaks from 1976 and The Evil Dead would make for a good 42nd Street grindhouse show in the 90s. Maybe we should cover them on the vault. I'm hoping we definitely do. I'm certain that the Evil Dead will be covered. I know you guys want to cover Phantasm, and I would love to cover those movies. I've only seen the first two. I haven't seen, like, three and four yet, but I'm a big fan of Coscarelli's stuff, so anything we cover over there would be great. Uh, getting sidetracked again, Luke continues, I think we all know that Guy Gard- if that if Guy Gardner was to join Megadeth, Dave Mustaine would fire him shortly afterwards. Okay, no doubt in my mind. Although there is a Megadeth song which Guy would approve of called The World Needs a Hero from the album of the same name, which is about the titular hero gets, who gets called from the White House, NATO and the UN, and tells them to call him back because he cannot be bought. Sounds a bit like Guy to me. I haven't heard this Megadeth song. Um, unfortunately, I really, really know of their Symphony of Destruction album, so the songs off that are pretty much what I know Megadeth from. Finally, Luke wraps up, not sure what was up with the goofball Guy Gardner issue this time out, but the Green Lantern Flash <clears throat> team-up sounded like fun. Sonar as a failed metalhead is hilarious and perfect at the same time, but as a huge headbanger, maybe I'm just more prone. Can't wait to hear the next installment. Thanks for the great show, Luke. Well, thank you, Luke. I hope you're doing okay. I hope that uh, you know fatherhood for the third time out is doing okay with you, and I Hope you and your wife are getting some sleep, because I, if you didn't know, Luke uh, just had a, a new child, a lovely little baby girl, and I know when you have uh, infants in the house, 
it gets pretty crazy. So hopefully you're doing well, Luke, and hopefully your wife's doing well as well. But I'm going to go ahead and cut off emails right there. We've got a few more to read, but I'll save those for the next show because I'm roaring, roaring? I'm ready to get into the coverage of Green Lantern number 72. Green Lantern number 72 was cover dated March 1996 and released on January 16, 1996. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World Comics for that info. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title this time out was Hero Quest 2 Fawcett. Fawcett is in Fawcett City, not as in Fawcett is the thing you turn off and get water out of. Writer was Ron Mars, penciler Paul Pelletier, anchor Romeo Tangal, colorist Linda Medley, letterer Albert Guzman, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Our story opens with a highly distracted professor almost getting crushed by a replica of an Egyptian statue. Luckily, Captain Marvel, Earth's mightiest mortal, was there to catch the stone monument from allowing the professor Talmay to not become a red smear on the steps of the Fawcett City Museum. Cap flies the head of the statue to the rooftop and goes back down to check on the professor. Talmay cites being preoccupied with the opening day of the Egyptian wing of the museum as cause for his inattentiveness, and hurries off into the building. Captain Marvel flies off, and the professor turns abruptly as he hears another random strike of lightning, something far too common in Fawcett City. Inside the museum, Kyle Rayner is busy sketching some of the artifacts in the previously mentioned Egyptian wing probably hoping to get a job for the revamp of the Masters of the Universe line when Professor Talmay sneaks up behind him and says that the exhibit is off limits until tomorrow. Cal tries to make small talk in order to keep sketching, but the professor is having none of it as he rudely shoves him out the front door. Peeved that his artwork was interrupted and he hasn't found Captain Marvel yet, who Kyle, as Green Lantern, was looking to acquire some heroic advice from, Kyle sets on the museum steps and tries to finish his drawing. Unfortunately, he can't get that done either, as he's interrupted by young Billy Batson, who wants to take a look-see. Kyle relents, and the two get into discussion about Captain Marvel, which young Billy seems to know a lot about. However, throughout the conversation, Professor Talmay has been jiggering with some of the artifacts and unleashed a ghostly form that inhabits his body and places the ancient mask on his head. Oh, and it also blows up the museum all Nakatomi's tower style. Started by the explosion, the duo part ways said that they may assume their secret identities of Green Lantern and Captain Marvel. Kyle crashes into the museum and finds Marvel already inside. He also finds Seti, not the strange alien searching thing, but the actual Egyptian person, the resurrected Egyptian magician who zaps both of our heroes. This leads to the obligatory fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011 All Rights Observed, as Kyle rings up a Boris Karloff mummy construct to take on the baddie, while Captain Marvel wants to try and talk. Kyle doubts the veracity of Marvel's plan, thinking if they can just remove the helmet of the villain, all will go back to normal. Sadly, this isn't the case, because on removing of said mask, Kyle realizes that the rabble rouser was actually Professor Ptolemy, who has been possessed by the Ka of Seti. Zapped back into the arms of Captain Marvel, Kyle wonders how they're going to win this battle. Cap says that he's going to try his strategy as he pleads with the professor to stop the destruction of the artifacts that he so tirelessly worked to bring to the museum. Fighting back, the professor technicolor yawns the evil spirit out, which Kyle contains in a ring construct sarcophagus before it can enter the body of Captain Marvel. Crisis averted, 
Green Lantern thanks the Big Red Cheese for showing them that sometimes you can end a fight without even throwing a single punch. Cut to the epilogue, where we see various planets that have been decimated, and the Dark Stars protecting them murdered. We cut to the Dark Star base, where the remaining members of the squad make a projection on where the next attack will occur. Dark Star Donna Troy says that all projections lead to the next attack occurring on the planet of Ren, to which Dark Star Jon Stewart says that this is where that they will make their last stand. I thought it was really nice here that Kyle went seeking out some of the more, let's just say, obscure big guns of the DCU. I mean, yes, last issue, the first one he went to was Batman, so we're really not starting out with uh, the not big guns. But here he's getting advice from Captain Marvel, which is kind of, well, he's a difficult character to deal with. Technically, he wasn't originally a Marvel, or he wasn't originally not a Marvel, but a DC character. He was a Fawcett character that, because he was so like Superman, there were legal problems, and he eventually got bought out as Fawcett Comics went under, and DC bought out the character rights. But they couldn't really integrate the character into the stories because of all this legal wrangling. So... It's nice that instead of going to Superman, he went to Captain Marvel instead. And I think it actually works because in this issue, we get the idea that Kyle doesn't need to solve everything with fighting. As Captain Marvel, who has the wisdom of Solomon, actually contains this fight and finishes it without throwing a single punch. So that's actually kind of neat. But going on into notes, I'll go ahead and start off with the cover which is a really dynamic look of the sort of alien, well, not really alien, the Egyptian character in the background with this purplish, pinkish electricity coming off of him, zapping both Kyle and Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel doesn't have the sort of C.C. Beck sort of animated look to him. He's got more of an Ordway look to him. And I really like the way Pelletier draws him. In fact, one of the things that I want to comment on is the fact that Captain Marvel's uniform, especially his shirt, actually looks like a shirt. It doesn't look like form-fitting sort of, not like rope, but the form-fitting sort of spandex-type stuff that you'd see on most superheroes. It actually looks like a shirt, and you can see the sort of folds in the sleeves and all that. And that's a nice artistic touch that you probably wouldn't see in a lot of other people heroes' costumes. But Captain Marvel's costume is iconic, especially with the cape with the chain around it that sort of hangs down a lot differently than the other superheroes' cape. So nice look on the cover. Good cover here. Page one, as Captain Marvel uh, saves Professor Talmay here from a falling, looks like a sphinx head. Well, maybe not a sphinx head, but a ancient Egyptian rock formation head thing. We've got this guy uh, over here in the right-hand corner that looks a heck of a lot like Jimmy Cliff. And I'm wondering why the heck Jimmy Cliff is on page one of this book, aside from there's need to throw in some random person in here but he's got the very jamaican braids in his hair and 
Uh, I don't get it. Moving on a few pages, we get to page four, panel one, where Kyle uh, talks about him having the hots for ISIS actress Joanna Cameron. Now, for those of you who didn't know, during the 70s, there was a Captain Marvel and an ISIS show. Now, ISIS officially wasn't like a Fawcett character or even a DC character, but they did a animated show that uh, Captain Marvel and I think the Marvel family did with them. And they had a live-action one and an animated one as well. But Kyle uh, seems to have the uh, hots for Joanna Cameron, and it's nice that I guess that shows that this show about ISIS was canon in the DCU at the time, which is kind of odd. I mean, does DC have shows about Superman? Would the Adventures of Superman show be playing in the DC universe? That'd be kind of awkward for Clark Kent, but who knows? Page 5, panel 4. I know that this is actually not supposed to be seen in the panels, but it just kind of bugs me. I know it's supposed to be invisible, and it's just something that our the readers are supposed to see. But in this panel, Kyle has his Green Lantern ring on, and it's obviously visible. Now, supposedly in the books itself, no one can see the ring because it's cloaked or whatever. But still just having it here, even though we can see it, it it just it's one of those little things that bugs me. I mean, you've got this giant Green Lantern ring on your finger, and people don't notice that. It... It kind of takes me out of the book a little, I guess. Then on page 7, we get the coincidence meeting place, as Kyle Rayner, who was looking for Captain Marvel, happens to run into Billy Batson, who, if you didn't know, is Captain Marvel. So I guess it's a good thing that they met up here. And it's also nice that even though Kyle was kind of a jerk to this little annoying kid who was wanting to see his sketchings or whatever that he at least apologizes to him. And you can see in the artwork here that initially Kyle's kind of peeved at him, but Kyle's a good guy at heart and lets the kid take a look at his drawing. So again, we see that Kyle is not really the jerk that he possibly could be. I mean, he could be portrayed as one if you really wanted to have him that way, but he's not, thankfully. Page 8, we get a nice storytelling element on this page as we're having the dialogue boxes between uh, Billy and Kyle going on as they're discussing Kyle wanting to meet Cap, uh, Captain Marvel and uh, Billy saying that he knows about him and that he appears pretty much whenever there's trouble, uh, along with the panels uh, showing Professor Talmay breaking open the jar and being possessed by the uh, character of Seti. So it's a nice bit of... I guess that's more of a sort of movie-type trope where you'll see or hear things off-panel while you'll be seeing something else. So it's kind of innovative here, and I like that. Then on page 9, panel 2, I'm just looking at this panel, and you see this giant explosion in the building. It looks like it knocks out, like, three floors of glass and the bottom floor as well. Like I said, it's a very Nakatomi tower-type explosion, but... Billy and Kyle are just sitting right there on the steps, not, I'd say, less than 100 feet away from the entrance. They're going to get covered in glass, and so it just sort of, again, takes me out of the book because here's two people sitting by this huge explosion, and 
They're just like, oh, an explosion. Well, I've got to go. <laughs> Talk to you later. Yeah, it, again, it doesn't really work for me. And then just another little nitpick on the coloring in the book. I've commented about the coloring being really good, especially with uh, Kyle's uniform and the sort of different shading of the green that you'll get in it. Here I've got to complain a little bit about the coloring in Kyle's hair. I don't know what they're doing, but in a lot of these panels, it looks like they've used the color purple to shade in Kyle's hair. Now, I know they're trying to look at a sort of dark sheen to it, but unfortunately, the coloring still looks purple, and it looks like he's just dyed his hair really punk. Could be that he is trying to dye his hair and be sort of punk, but it doesn't really work with him. I, I think they're just trying to go for the black look in it. Again, another sort of nitpick about this comic. Page 15, Cal obviously doesn't realize that Captain Marvel is imbued with the Wisdom of Solomon thing because Captain Marvel feels that the best way to deal with this would be to talk with him first. And Cal's not having any of that as he creates these giant constructs to try and take him out. Of course, one of the great ones I love here is this giant construct he has of the uh, Boris Karloff mummy that he uses to uh, sort of smash at SETI. That almost came out bad. That's uh, a really nice-looking uh, piece of artwork here, and Pelletier captures sort of the image of the Karloff mummy character. So, neat panel here on this uh, page 15. Throughout the rest of the book, it's just pretty much a big fight with Cal trying to beat up on SETI with Captain Marvel, like I said, trying to talk to him. And eventually, after Captain Marvel does get the professor to realize what he's doing, and he sort of barfs up the sort of vomit ghost of SETI, it's a good thing Kyle was around to wrap that ghost up in a sort of ring construct sarcophagus. Otherwise, it would have gone into Captain Marvel. And if Captain Marvel were possessed by SETI, it, it would have been pretty bad. But that leads us into pages 21 and 22, which is the epilogue of the story. And I hate to say it. Uh, I hope it's not wrong that I really don't care about what happens to the dark stars aside from John Stewart and Donna Troy. I mean, they never really were a character that I got into. And I don't know if any people are out there really jonesing for a dark star show. Maybe after I finish this run, I'll, Go back and read them, and I'll do a Dark Star show. Probably not. Then on page 22, panel 1, uh, I'm looking at, uh, I guess the character is Merwin, which is Jon Stewart's whoopee in the uh, Dark Stars after the whole thing that happened with, uh, oh, Cat Matui. It looks like uh, they brought in Ed Benes to uh, draw Merwin here because she's got the typical uh, side pose where she's showing... Not only her boobs, but her butt as well. So I'm glad to see that that just wasn't a trope of the uh, 2000s. No, it still existed in the 90s. So way to go, Pelletier. You're an innovator. But that does it for the Green Lantern book. I'll go ahead and take a little break here. I'm going to go get something to drink. I will play a couple of promos here. And as soon as I get back, I will start up on my coverage of the awesome and hilariously funny issue of Guy Gardner Warrior Number 41, with Mike Parabek Art. Loving it. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet, 
are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. And we're back. And that was a new promo. I just uh, added that to my uh, promo rotation. That's for Radio Free Asgard by Tom Harris. Uh, Tom Harris uh, is one of the people I've encountered on Facebook. And if you didn't know, now I'm on Facebook. It was... Part of my Demonsicore contract, I had to actually show up on there. So if you want to, you can look for me on Facebook. I'm there, and maybe I'll friend you. Who knows? Uh, I don't really post all that much, but yeah, I'm there. But uh, Radio Free Asgard is a show that I hadn't heard of for a while until I heard of it on, uh, let's see, I think it was Hey Kids Comics where I first heard of it. It sounds like an interesting show, and I'm glad to be uh, promoting it. Also, I'd like to just go ahead and say, if any of you have uh, promos that you'd like me to play on the show, uh, I would be more than happy to do that. If you have shows that you want to have promoted, the best way that you know podcasters can get their shows out, I think, is uh, to let people know about it on other shows. And I'm more than happy to promote well, any type of show out there. So if you do have a, a podcast promo, go ahead and uh, shoot me an email over at just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com and I'll uh, put it into the rotation and get the word out that you guys are uh, doing your own little shows. But I'm going to head and do my little show about uh, Guy Gardner Warrior, starting with Guy Gardner Warrior number 41. Guy Gardner Warrior number 41 was covered dated April 1996 and released on February 6, 1996. Cover price was $1.75 US and $2.50 Canada. The title was Guys and Babes in Toyland. 
The story was by Bo Smith, pencils by Mark Campos, inks Dan Davis, letterer was Albert Guzman, edits was Eddie Braganza, and animation was by Mike Parabek and Dan Davis. You'll figure out what's going on here in a few. The 1996 Toy Fair is the place where all the major players in the toy creating world come to show off their new wares before they ship them off to the public. And nothing is hotter this year than the newly designed line of Guy Gardner Warrior Toys. Of course they are. Of course, to promote the line, Buck Wargo made sure that Guy showed up in his fully tattooed regalia to make good to make a good impression. After meeting with the toy promoter and former Ann Coulter impersonator Olivia Reynolds, Guy, Guy gets handed a version of the Guy Gardner Warrior animated series for his approval. While this is going on, a group of quorum goons led by Iron Man wannabe Dungeon <sighs> arrive at the fair to start some trouble. The group invade the toy fair in hopes to capture Guy for DNA extraction, which of course leads to the Bo Smith level of Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland 2011, all rights reserved. Fire, Verona, and Buck all join in as Guy mops the floor with the quorum members and inevitably trash the entire toy fair. Crisis averted, Guy and Buck wonder why the quorum sent the C-listers to take them down. While at the quorum base, the scientists marvel at the new specimens they've created from Guy's DNA. Oh, did I mention while all of this was going on, the story was paralleled in a cartoony alternative form that was very reminiscent of Batman the Animated Series. In fact, at the end of the book, Guy and company end up watching the animated pilot and marveling about how far from reality it really is. Guy asks if they can stop it airing, and Buck says it's too late for that. And with the viewing part over, Fire gets up to leave and Guy walks around, saying that she'll see if she can get more JLO memorabilia for the bar. Fire gives Guy a kiss on the cheek as she flies off, which Guy thinks is just peachy. I know it's kind of a cheat using the Shirley Walker Superman theme there, but it kind of links into the entire idea of the uh, issue sewed here. This is a uh, interesting comic because it's basically done halfway the regular art team with Campos doing his really over-the-top 90s art and half of it very cartoony parapet art. It's very much reminiscent of the kind of art we would see in the Batman Adventures and later on the Superman Adventures comic. Unfortunately, yeah, this is some of the last work that Parabek would do, but it just shows how wonderful an artist he is because when you're doing simplistic sort of animation type design here, it's easy to get it bad, done wrong and it's easy to make it look bad, but Parabek does such a great job and just makes it look good. Plus, uh, the past few books have been sort of spotlights on Bo Smith's ability to write great drama and uh, great action. This time out, we get just great comedy from Bo Smith. 
And like I said, the paraback art in this book is really great self-referential humor. It's incredibly funny, and it's just it's just amazing. The blending of Bo Smith's story and his comedy and Parabek's artwork here just makes for a glorious comic. I'm going to try and describe it, but this is one that I think you would definitely need to go hunt out because it's just so fun. It's just so joyously enjoyable. And the parallels between what's going on in the actual story with Guy and Campos' art versus the Parabek story are just drop down on the floor, laugh your head off funny, in my opinion. I'm going to do my best to try and uh, relate that to you, but uh, go out and check out the book. Find it in the dollar bins, find it in the 50-cent bins, find it in the 50p bins if you're over in the UK, if you can, because this is stuff to look forward to. But starting out with coverage, I'll go ahead and start on, obviously, the cover, as we've got a sort of 50-50 cover. On the uh, right side of the cover, it's Campos's art, and we get Guy with his big guns shooting plasma and everything, but on the left-hand side, we get the same sort of image of Guy shooting guns, but it's Parabek art, and it's a nice sort of distinction. The two blend well together. The colors are a little bit different, but you can tell that there is a bit more cartoony style on the left side, and <laughs> Tiger Man just looks really ridiculous over here. But it's a neat cover. It's an eye-catching one. And I also like the as-seen-on-TV little logo they have up there underneath the uh, oh, the box where they show the prices of it. And it's an as-seen-on-TV question mark. So you kind of get the idea that this might not be television-worthy. Then starting out in the book, we get the, like I said, the top half of the uh, book is basically done for the actual quote-unquote real-life gardener. And the bottom one is essentially the animated style. And I'm probably going to focus mainly on the animated style because the top story is just a big sort of fight sequence with Guy out at the toy fair. The uh, bottom one is on page one, we get Guy and Nort, who are actually very good friends in the animated version, uh, going into the toy fair and talking with the... a lot of the people. In fact, he's talking with uh, someone who's like a, I guess, a Power Ranger type character that Guy's very friendly to. And it's hilarious because in the Guy Gardner animated version, he doesn't throw a punch in there. He's just Mr. Nice, clean American person. <laughs> it's such a contrast to how he is in the real life one. I'm using air quotes. But, uh, it's just amazing. And I love Nort here. He's in his typical Nort costume, but he's also got a sort of Charlie Brown type sweater on. It's it's great. And Nort here is actually portrayed more as the sort of lecherous character instead of Guy. Funny stuff. Then on page two, I'll mention something here on the uh, Guy Gardner warrior part. Uh, they've got a couple of cameos here, and they like to throw these in, cameos of different people. It looks like the at the Toy Fair, one of the big things is, uh, looks like Shadowhawk and maybe Spawn here. But they're trying to throw in references to other 90s properties here to kind of make the book sort of topical and all that. It's not really necessary. In the uh, 
in the Parabek art, uh, we've got Farland toys, as not McFarland, but there's uh, Spawn toys there. And we also get a uh, Guy Gardner Warrior boy toy, just Peachy, which is Guy Gardner Warrior's phrase in the uh, animated version. And it looks like uh, Mitch Bird and, well, not Mitch Bird, but uh, Bo Smith and Mark Campos are in the uh, store uh, signing autographs for their books. So another uh, cameo of those uh, creators for the books. Kind of neat. Then moving on to page four, I find this kind of amusing. In the quote-unquote real world of Guy Gardner, the uh, cartoon that uh, Olivia Reynolds is trying to sell is a big hit and is going to make a lot of money for Guy Gardner. In the uh, animated world, not so much. The Guy Gardner comic or the Guy Gardner animated series is kind of looked down on. So it's it's an amusing thing. And I love this panel here as uh, there's just so many... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting distracted by this. There are just so many amusing things in here, like Verona coming up to Guy Gardner and saying, Oh, great warrior king. I am yours. Please allow me to bear you many well-postured children. And Guy's like, oh, Verona, your native greetings are so quaint. Here in the good old U.S. of A., a firm handshake will do, as Olivia Reynolds looks on kind of awkwardly. And You'll get later on in the issue that Olivia Reynolds might have some, oh, issues as well. Then on page six, we get the introduction of our villains for this issue, and... I really can't tell which one is more ridiculous. The uh, real-world villain of Dungeon, who is a sort of white-armored Iron Man wannabe, or the animated world version of The Debt, who is a <laughs> purple and blue clad with yellow moon boots character who's <sighs> swinging around a sort of ball and chain. And on his uh, chest, he's got the... Uh, symbol on there with little bars running through it and underneath on his abdomen he's got you owe me not as in y-o-u but the letter u the letter o and then me yeah i can't uh, can't really figure out or can't really determine which one of these characters is more ridiculously embarrassing moving on to page seven we can hear I think Bo Smith is trying to, in the animated version, make Olivia Reynolds out to be a sort of kind of stereotypical lesbian character as she's eyeing the Verona doll and saying, as you can see, every titillating curve has been reproduced for maximum mm, play action. And then Guy says, I don't know that bending over was a play action move, Olivia. So it's just... They're having fun with this, and I'm glad that we have a, a comic in the era of the 90s that was so serious and it's sort of grim and gritty and over-the-topness that we're having someone that's having fun with it, especially here that we also have a booth here in the animated version of Tarantino Toys that says, wait till you hear what they say. So you could probably buy your uh, John Travolta action figures that would say things that you probably couldn't say in a normal podcast. Page 8 in the animated portion of the book, as the uh, bad guys are making their way through the toy fair, I think it's hilarious that they're trying to take down the people in there with, quote-unquote, 
Spongeo bats, which are basically Nerf bats, and they're not really doing any damage to anyone. They're just annoying them. It's it's more hilarity. And as an example of that, here in uh, on the same page in panel six, we get Verona confronting Olivia, saying, "No, Miss Reynolds, a French-made outfit is not what I wear when fighting evil people." As uh, Buck hears a fight brewing, and says, "Hey, I hear a fight brewing. Better rip my shirt." And guy looks at the uh, guy gardener toys and says, "What does she mean by anatomically correct?" They're just having so much fun with this, and it's such a nice break from it. I cannot tell you. Go pick this book up, please. Then on page nine, we as the fight is breaking out, and obviously Buck has ripped his shirt, is starting to punch people, uh, we get uh, Fire coming in to talk to Guy. And rather than in the real world, where Fire and Guy are blasting away at people, here Fire and Guy are having a nice little conversation, and most of it's in Spanish, and I tried to use Google Translate to uh, figure out what it is, and the best translation translation I could get was uh, a guy saying, warm me up, or actually, yeah, it's a guy saying, warm me up, my Cholito, which I don't know what a Cholito is, but then we have Fire saying essentially, yes, as I suspected. If you love me, my refried Frijolito, no idea, Bring me the thermometer. I don't know what it means, but I'm certain it's supposed to be filled with filthy, filthy innuendo. Then moving on to page 10, we get Olivia sort of, after she's gotten attacked by the people on the animated side, she turns into radical feminist, almost, I want to say, feminazi, and starts punching them out and, you know, calling them men and just being really ridiculous over the top it's it's pretty funny but while all of this is going on and this chaos is raging around them all guy and fire can talk about is how amazingly well fire keeps up her uh, uniform and guy believes that it's gravity powers that she's using to uh, keep her top from falling and fire just says no she's just built that way i love it Speaking of things that I love, even more on page 12, Buck is in the background as uh, Fire and Guy are looking at debt here, and someone's yelling at uh, Buck saying, no, 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 I'm sorry, those are the businessmen, you don't need to fight them. So Buck doesn't care, he's just in a fight, he's going to punch whoever he wants to. It's so hilariously funny. And even moving on to the next page, we get a caption saying, so what do you mean you got to keep fighting till your shirt is completely ripped off? <laughs> Obviously, Buck can't finish fighting until his shirt's been torn off. So this also plays plays into effect later in the book. So it, just hilarious stuff here. I I can't recommend this book anymore. Uh, moving on, uh, we get to pages fourteen and fifteen, where essentially they turn. They turn Olivia Reynolds into a giant, raging, lesbian stereotype. It's pretty obnoxiously awful, but it's also pretty amusing at the same time, as she's suddenly got her hair in a bandana, and she's smoking a giant cigar, and Guy has fired her from a catapult at uh, at Dad as she's going to punch the living crap out of him. 
this is just Bo Smith cutting loose and I think showing a bit of his political side, but he's having fun with it. I don't think it's necessarily mean-spirited, but I do think it's just hilariously funny. However, moving on to page 6, or not 6, page 16, Buck's shirt is finally off, and the fight still rages on, but Buck can't fight anymore because his shirt has been completely ripped off, so we have an image here of Buck sitting down to drink a bit of brew beer. Of course, because when the fight's over, it's nothing's better than having a cold one. <laughs> Love it. Of course, it all goes on throughout the anime thing, and it ends essentially with Olivia Reynolds as Rosie the Riveter sort of emasculating the debt by making him wear a very frilly, girly apron. And again, Guy was pretty ineffectual in the uh, animated version of this. He didn't even throw a punch. So, However, uh, even though Guy didn't throw a punch, it looks like he may be throwing a little bit other things, as on page 19, he walks arm-in-arm with uh, Verona and Fire to uh, do a little celebrating, if you know what I mean. A little three-way celebrating. Maybe. And then we've got page 20, where we get Guy and Verona and Fire walking off in the sunset, and Buck with his beer, and Guy delivering his just-peachy line, and Nort being completely embarrassed, and signing off in a very Porky Pig, Looney Tunes type fashion saying ain't that enough folks it's just it's taking the mick out of the whole looney tunes and the whole batman and the animated series and just having fun with it it's it's joyous it really is but then to finish it up we get a uh, look at all the uh, guy gardner warrior toys and let me go ahead and we got uh, it's basically a nine panel actually an eight panel grid showcasing each of the animated figures from the cartoon and their uh, representative action figures. We get the Guy Gardner Warrior toy with 21 manly points of articulation. I don't know what manly points of articulation are. We get Buck Wargo, action cowchip throwing arm. <laughs> cowchip not included. And if you don't know what a cowchip is, uh, email me and I'll let you know. We get Tiger Man, who comes with a furball hacking action and kitty litter box that transforms into a bazooka. We've got Verona with a scroll, not scroll, Verona with skull-crushing thighs. Neat. Joey Hong, action voice, recites Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan quotes. Lord. Rita Muldoon comes with 30 sets of wardrobe changes and matching guns. <laughs> this is hilarious. Wildcat comes with Cat Cycle and Senior Citizen Parking Pass. <laughs> oh, oh lord. <laughs> Lady Blackhawk comes with peanuts, not edible, plus a seat flotation devices and an in-flight movie. <laughs> Way to play down the character of Lady Blackhawk. And at the end, we get Nort saying, And remember, kids, for every $20 bill you take out of your daddy's wallet and send to good old Nort, I'll send you candid photos from the shower room at JLA headquarters and a free figure of me, good old Nort, too. And then it says uh, in the little uh, asterisk box, caption box at the end, This offer only good for residents of Coast City. Ouch. 
Oh, Lord, this is hilarious. And then the last page we get uh, the realization that Guy and the crew were actually watching the animated version of this that was supposed to parallel what went on at the uh, toy fair and realizing that this is probably the worst kind of publicity that Guy Gardner could ever get. However, it does sort of cement the idea that Guy and Fire are actually getting along as Guy gives him a little peck on the cheek as she flies off and Guy thinks that it was just peachy. This is a wonderful book. Please, please, if you're listening to this show and you don't have these books with you, go and hunt these down. They've got to be in the 50 cent bins and the dollar bins because this is just such a joy to look at. And in the, uh, actually in the letters column, we get more stuff about uh, some of the action figures that they're coming out with the classic guy gardener green lantern each figure is individually numbered and we dare you to find number 2814 this one also has two phrases when you press his ring saying guy gardener the one true green lantern and how jordan's a weenie then we get the guy gardener reborn action figure which includes cowboy boots a yellow ring and says green lanterns are wusses plus the immortal how jordan's a weenie then there's a Dementor figure, which would be interesting. This one's for the older kids, because his 10-inch figure will repeat whatever you say and turn it into a foul mouth curse. Now, I don't know why we have a Sledge figure, because if you get the Sledge figure, you push his back button, and his bulging rubber muscles will break any of your parents' expensive china. But just don't take our word for it. Try this. This figure is non-refundable. Then uh, we also get uh, Guy's Old Indian, which is Guy's motorcycle, which he rode in the, uh, oh, what is it, issue 22? Yeah, I think so. An exact replica of the classic Indian motorcycle that can be turned into a very deadly weapon since it uses real fuel. Fun for young and old. So, Olivia Reynolds in the book is marketing the Guy Gardner Warrior toy line. And God help me if I could find these things, actually, I'd buy the living hell out of them. But that's it for the issue. Uh, this was just... It saddens me so much that the Warrior line is going to end soon. I mean, I think we only have like three more issues of this. And if this is any indication of what was going to be happening with it, this could have been such a fun book. But the 90s and their ridiculous over-the-topness, the sort of emphasis on style over substance was coming to a, a an end and the speculator market had burst and things were going downhill and Guy Gardner was one of the books that just had to hit the chopping block but there are ads that we still have to take a look at and some are going to be pretty fun so let's go ahead and take a look at the ads in this book on the front end side cover, we get an ad for uh, some Sega Genesis games, including the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, VR Rangers, and Super Return the Jedi. And I guess you can get $5 back if you eat Raisin Bran, Fruity, or Cocoa Pebbles, Golden Crisp, or Honeycomb cereals, and send in proof of purchase from there and proof of purchase the game. So $5 back on these neat games, I guess. Oh, they're a Game Gear game, so they're for the uh, little handheld ones, so they're not actually for the Sega Genesis, so... Eh, I probably wouldn't have bought these anyway. I mean, the games, not the cereal. I'd buy the cereal. A few pages in, we get the Simon and Kirby, 
the, the Simon and Kirby The Legend books with Fighting American and Boys Ranch, I believe the reason these went for such a high price were because they had a certificate of authenticity uh, with a autographed Joe Simon. So it had a Joe Simon autograph. So it was limited to an edition of 500. So it makes sense that these would actually be a bit more pricey. So eh, there you go. If you wanted some early Kirby Simon stuff, it was there. Next page is another uh, promo for the Kingdom Come ad. This one has, it looks like uh, Captain Marvel on there. And the quote is, And when he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Uh, it's a nice Alex Ross, Alex Ross vision of uh, Captain Marvel with uh, lightning striking him, him holding his fist to high. Uh, again, I think we talked about this uh, last episode with uh, Tom Panarese and the Kingdom Come stuff. It was a good book, and go check out Kingdom Come. It was Alex Ross before he got really overrated. A few more pages in, we get Fatal Fight, which is the entire universe versus the Legion of Superheroes. Unfortunately, I never follow the heroes. I guess the Legion of Superheroes, I guess there's Saturn Girl and maybe Lightning Lass fighting some guy with a brain dome helmet and some guy in Iron Man's original gold armor mask with an axe. So, Legion fans, there you go. It's Legion. And again, we get the ad for the Batman and Robin Adventures, which was the continuing story of the Batman Adventures in comic form. Again, I think Tom and I commented on this in the last episode, so there you are. Then way on into the book, this is kind of odd because I've seen this colored before. It's an advertisement for the Superman books with Superman Action Comics, Adventures of Superman, Superman Man of Steel, and Superman The Man of Tomorrow. But however, this one is in black and white. It's not colored. So it's kind of odd that we have this advertisement here. It looks, I guess maybe they're going for a sort of uh, 1950s Adventures of Superman TV show type look is that show originally came out in black and white so you never know maybe my book just didn't get coloring on this page then the next page is freefall acceleration 32 feet per second squared impact imminent escape impossible so why is this man smiling could be because he's mr miracle and i guess this is for the ongoing mr miracle series uh maybe it was ongoing i don't really recall this one uh it might have been, it might have been a miniseries. Well, I guess it's not a miniseries. So, Mister Miracle book. Guess you could have picked it up uh, when Guy Gardner Warrior stopped showing up. Damn you all. Moving on, we get the. I don't get it. Free five-minute phone card for subscribing to two or more of the DC titles. I guess it's a phone card with Superboy, The Flash, and Green Lantern on it, but a phone card. Really? Okay. Then the page after that is an ad for Comic Buyer's Guide 1996 Fan Awards. Uh, basically, it's a write-in ballot that I guess you could cut out of your book and mail in. I hope people didn't cut it out of the book, but they had uh, names for favorite editor, writer, penciler, inker, colorist, painter, letterer, cover artist, comic book story, comic book, comic book series, graphic novel or album, and favorite character. 
And thanks to the internet, we get an idea of who won this. Let's see, in 1996, it looks like, from what I'm getting on the internet, it looks like editor was Bob Harris, writer was Carl Banks, interestingly enough, penciler was William Van Horn, inker Pat Block, colorist Tom McCraw, painter was Alex Ross, cover artist was Alec Rost, letter was William Van Horn, Comic book story was horsing around with history from Uncle Scrooge. Uh, Sandman Midnight Theater was original graphic novel. Reprint graphic novel was the Carl Barks Gallery. Limited series was Sin City Big Fat Kill. And the comic book was Uncle Scrooge Adventures. And characters were Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. So, surprisingly, in 1996, the big thing was Carl Barks's uh, Donald Duck Adventures, or Uncle Scrooge Adventures. So... That's kind of interesting. The back inside cover has the uh, pay-per-view thing for Batman Forever. We covered that last issue. And the back outside cover was uh, Cyber Mage, available for PC, CD, ROM. It's one of these, I guess, 3D video games that has actual SVGA gameplay. Woo. But that does it for the ads. Uh, Nothing really new this time out. Hopefully next time out we'll get some new video game ads. Uh, get some stuff for the PlayStation. Maybe Crash Bandicoot. Ooh. But yeah, that does it for this episode. I appreciate you guys mailing in. I appreciate you guys listening. And uh, next time out we're going to be finishing up the Heroes Quest storyline with uh, a little bit of Wonder Woman coming in to deal with Kyle. Plus we're also going to be dealing with a little bit of womanliness over in Guy Gardner's. Guy's going through a few changes as well. We'll just have to see what they are. So, thanks everyone for listening and downloading, and be sure to come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a member of the Two True Freaks family of podcasts. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show 
was Superman Shazam, The Return of Black Adam from the movie Superman Shazam, Return of Black Adam, written by Jerry Zuckerman. If you'd like to go purchase this song, well, it'd probably be best if you went out and purchased the actual DVD. The DVD is the obviously mentioned Superman Shazam, Return of Black Adam, which is... uh, has a few of the DC uh, showcase shorts, which include Green Arrow, The Spectre, and I think Jonah Hex as well. Uh, it's definitely worth getting, and the best place that you could get it through would be Amazon.com. Why Amazon.com, you may ask? Simply because if you go to the brand new Two True Freaks site at twotruefreaks.com, up at the top of the page there is a banner that will direct you to Amazon.com. Click on that banner and you'll be redirected to Amazon.com where you can buy the animated DVD or perhaps the Blu-ray of Superman Shazam, The Return of Black Adam. And when you make a purchase at Amazon.com, a small amount of money that you pay for that purchase at Amazon.com will go back to the Two True Freaks website. It's no additional money that you have to pay. It simply comes from your purchase at Amazon.com. And since Amazon has some of the cheapest prices around, I don't know why you'd go shopping for anything anywhere else. But remember, if you want to purchase anything from Amazon, make sure you go to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon banner at the top of the page.